History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 42, Darius the Shopkeeper. You just heard from Ramsey of the Conquerors podcast, and I highly encourage you to go check it out. Uh, It's a really fun dive into some of the famous and less famous great conquering kings and leaders in history. Uh, He's moving through history much faster than I am, and it's a cool way to view the ancient world. Before I get into the episode, I just want to make a bit of an announcement. If your podcast app of choice keeps track of how many items are in a podcast feed, you'll notice that this is the 50th thing I've posted. If you're seeing the Patreon feed, it should be the 61st. Of course, I've made the choice not to count the introduction, announcements, holiday specials, or interviews toward the regular episode count. But this means we are rapidly approaching the official episode 50. I should reach that point right around the start of Xerxes' invasion of Greece in a couple of months. And I want to thank everyone for listening and supporting the show for so long. I also want to announce that I'll be participating in the grand podcast tradition of celebrating my first big milestone with an AMA, an Ask Me Anything episode. In episode 50, I will answer all of the questions you have to ask me. That can be questions about ancient Persia, 
history more generally, podcasting, or even questions about me, within reason. So start sending them in now. You can ask your questions through all of the usual places. Message me or comment on Facebook and Instagram, where I'm the History of Persia podcast, on Twitter at History of Persia, or email me at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the contact page on historyofpersiapodcast.com, or go there to find links to basically everything else. I'm looking forward to receiving and answering your questions. I also hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Ryan Stitt last time. I think it's worthwhile to get a broader sense of Greco-Persian relations before we dive into the Greek War's full force under Xerxes. The last regular episode rounded out the series on Darius the Great's family members, with some short features on his sons, most importantly the future king Xerxes, and his half-brothers Ariamenes and Artabazinus. This time, we'll spend one last episode on the man himself, Darius the Great. While we're here, in the headspace of looking back at previous episodes, it's crazy to think that Darius has been great king for more than half of the podcast so far. And there's still one topic I haven't really touched on at all. That is, Darius's reputation as Persia's great reformer. Spurred on by just a few sentences of Herodotus, centuries worth of historians built Darius the Great up as a king who reformed Persian administrative policy and reorganized the entire empire. And while modern scholars have taken a step back from attributing too much change to Darius alone, there can be little doubt that the Achaemenid Empire was heavily defined by policies he adopted for the rest of its history. No quote sums it up quite as nicely as one of the more famous lines from Herodotus. According to the Greek historian, The Persians say that Darius was a shopkeeper, Cambyses a despot, and Cyrus a father. Of all the quotes and colloquialisms that Herodotus attributes to the Persian populace, this is one of the few that I'm inclined to believe is genuine. Cyrus as a father is both obvious and familiar. He was the leader who forged the empire from a small province to the greatest superpower the world had ever known. He and his generation set out the defining attributes of Persian power in a similar way that modern Americans might think about George Washington and the so-called Founding Fathers. Cambyses' description as a despot, despotes in Greek, might be the first time the word was used with the connotation it still has in English, a cruel, oppressive, absolute ruler. But it's also worth thinking about in the Greek context, where despot was the word for a master of the house, giving Cambyses the air of both an abusive father figure and a master of slaves. We know that Cambyses wasn't the mad tyrant described by Herodotus, which you can hear more about in episode 17, The Mad King, but the idea of despot isn't far off from the ideas suggested in the Behistun inscription. Bardia's apparent coup, and thus Darius's rise to power, 
seems to stem from Cambyses' more oppressive economic policies, or at least the consequences of both Cyrus's and Cambyses' constant warfare catching up after decades. Darius, then, is the shopkeeper for his own economic policies. In antiquity, Darius the Great was remembered as both a conqueror and an accountant. When he wasn't pushing the borders of the Persian Empire to their limits, he was ensuring consistent and well-documented revenue for the imperial treasury. Herodotus alludes to other reforms, but expounds on Darius's changes to the Persian system of taxation and tribute. In fact, Herodotus actually takes it a step beyond reality and claims that Darius instituted the first official system of tribute at all. Apparently, the Greeks were under the impression that Cyrus and Cambyses just received gifts from their subjects on an ad hoc basis. Obviously, that isn't true. Cyrus absolutely imposed or negotiated a set payment with each conquered kingdom that would be sent back to Persia on a regular basis. There probably wasn't any institution or regular system for determining those payments, but they must have existed. Cambyses would have inherited those arrangements and imposed his own on Egypt. Still, we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The reforms Herodotus described still make sense under Darius. It just has to be taken together with other sources, including other sections of Herodotus. Our Persian sources actually do more to reinforce this bias toward contributing everything to Darius more than they dispel it. All of the Persepolis Fortification Archive and part of the Treasury Archive in Parsa come from the reign of Darius, as do many of the surviving sources from Egypt and Babylonia. There is a larger concentration of primary documents from the reign of Darius I than we have from any other Achaemenid king. The sudden explosion of documentation certainly gives the impression that Darius was some kind of administrative innovator. And as I said, he almost certainly was. There are extenuating circumstances around most of our primary sources, some of which I'll discuss later. But we have to bear in mind that Darius's records at Persepolis are uniquely long-lasting. We have almost nothing from the other capital in Achaemenid Ecbatana, and Pasargadai never actually seems to have filled the role of a regional administrative center. That seems to have all shifted to Persepolis. Records from the time of Cyrus and Anshan would be great, but we would first have to be able to firmly identify the location of Anshan, which we haven't quite done yet. And records from Babylonia, while plentiful, mostly seem to cut out after rebellion in the reign of Xerxes. So the Persepolis records are uniquely suited to surviving anyway. Herodotus' description of Darius as a shopkeeper directly precedes his famous list of the Achaemenid provinces and their tribute payments. The tribute statistics offered by Herodotus are somewhat dubious. He clearly uses the value of their actual payments converted into talents, in his case probably a Greek measurement of weight in silver, 
As I discussed during the Grand Tour episodes, his understanding of the individual satrapies is also deeply flawed because of Herodotus's Greek perspective. From west to east, the Herodotian provinces get bigger and more nebulous the further you get from Greece itself. In Anatolia, he seems to separate entities like Ionia, Lydia, Cilicia, and Phrygia that we understand as divisions of larger satrapies. Then, in the Far East, he combines multiple significant satrapies together, possibly reflecting the so-called Great Satrapies, like just India, in an apparent reference to Hindush, Satagadia, and Gandhara. Herodotus even goes so far as to suggest that Darius was the one who implemented the borders between satrapies. Obviously, we know this wasn't true, many of them are modeled on pre-existing kingdoms and territories, and there was a set list of lands ruled by the great king when Darius came to power in the first place. So let's get into the meat of things. What exactly was the big deal about Darius's financial policy that led Herodotus to focus on it so intently? Part of it seems to be that Darius just had uncommonly good economic sense in the ancient world. Now, I should clarify whether or not we can actually talk about ancient economics in any meaningful sense of the word is a matter of serious academic debate. The Ur text on ancient economic history is The Ancient Economy by Moses Finley which essentially concludes that the ancient world lacked systemic economic structures. It's obviously more complicated than that. It is a whole book, but that's the gist. For the purpose of this episode, and discussions of financial systems and commerce more generally, I'm going to disagree with Finley and adopt a broader definition of the ancient economy as just the sum of all systems dealing with finances and trade in the ancient world. By that definition, Darius reformed, or at least decreed reforms, in almost every level of economic activity. Realistically, it was impossible to enforce and implement wide-ranging changes to daily life everywhere in the empire in just a few decades, but laws were developed and implemented in the major centers of power. By the end of the empire, many of the reforms initiated by Darius the Great would permeate the entire system. Darius showed an unusual appreciation for economics in a world where economic policy often amounted to debasing the currency or taxing the local populace to the brink of rebellion, or trying to undo one of those mistakes. Much of Darius's reforms seem to have been aimed at streamlining and securing a constant barrage of royal activity. The conquest of new territory from India to Central Asia to Greece, building huge palace complexes, restoring degrading infrastructure, and rebuilding from the slew of rebellions in the 520s and 490s required a lot of resources. Resources that had to be managed carefully to maintain a stable empire. Most importantly, according to Herodotus, Darius assessed each province to determine its borders, and then appropriate tax burdens for each province according to its resources and local concerns. All of this was done according to standard criteria that could be implemented uniformly across the empire in each satrapy. 
it seems entirely possible that this was actually born out of the wave of rebellions sparked by the death of Bardia. It seems plausible that Darius, much like Cyrus before him, imposed demands for tribute when he reconquered each new territory. Unlike Cyrus, it seems Darius realized there was a more efficient and effective way to calculate the value of that tribute. The value of local commerce, agricultural produce, livestock, and peasant or slave labor was all factored in to determine a tax burden. Additional penalties were likely imposed on rebellious satrapies, but I suspect that, too, would have been implemented in some standard system. Herodotus seems to imply that this is exactly what happened to the Greek city-states in the aftermath of the Ionian Revolt. Darius also sought to standardize how payment was handled, not just of these taxes or tribute, but in commerce more generally. To accomplish this, a system of weights and measures was introduced as the imperial standard. Prior to this, a range of regional systems would have been in play. Most likely, the Mesopotamian system developed under the Babylonians and Assyrians dominated much of the empire, while Elamite variants were common in the administrative centers of Persia, and other local variants popped up all over the place. Those local variants were never fully superseded by Darius's new official measurements, as we can see in continued use of Greek coinage in Anatolia, but the new system spread widely. At its core, the new system was modeled on the Babylonian standard, with some minor additions and alterations. Popular measurements like the bushel for volume and the cubit for length were well-defined and implemented as regular, reliable measurements. Likewise, units of measurement were established for land area, long distances, and weight. Weight, in particular, was very important for trade. One of Darius's key reforms was the introduction of an official imperial coinage, the gold daric, finally replacing the Lydian Cresid as the only coinage officially minted by the Persian government. Coinage was great for merchants, as it enabled the payment of large sums in relatively small packages, and an official mint ensured a standard weight and purity for the gold in any transaction. The problem was, coinage was a relatively new concept for most of the empire. Gold coins were extremely valuable, and the mint could only hope to generate so much, certainly not enough Dariks to assume the role of an imperial currency overnight. As such, barter and in-kind payments were still the most common transactions, and the value of the coins was very closely associated with their weight in gold. Even the official tribute payments were assessed in talents of gold, a measurement of weight, rather than a set number of Daric coins. In the Persian Empire, a talent was approximately 30 kilograms or 66 pounds, though Attic Greek talents were generally a bit lighter. One talent could be subdivided into 60 mina, and each mina could be divided into 60 shekels. All of these are measurements of weight, not units of currency. 
though the mina and shekel eventually did evolve into the standard weights of some coinage in the Hellenistic period. The issue for trade, especially in metals, was that a one mina ingot of gold could secretly have a lead weight in the core, meaning you get less gold in your transaction and have no way of realizing because anybody can melt gold into an ingot. Coinage was much safer because you know it was produced to a certain standard in a certain place. There are actual examples of this in the Persian archives, instances in which metal was given to officials or merchants under the pretense of being pure, but is revealed to be cut with some other metal when inspected by tax collectors. Still, when you weren't being scammed, a standard talent of reasonably pure gold or silver was the standard value that everything else was judged against. A herd of horses was worth X talents, a thousand liters of barley was worth Y talents, ten talents of iron was Z talents of silver, and so on. This system meant that when tax time rolled around, no province was compromised because it didn't have a stockpile of silver and gold. Instead, somewhere like Arya or Drangiana could send livestock equal to the value of their tax assessment. And it's transactions like that that make up the majority of our actual evidence for taxation during the reign of Darius. The Elamite word for tribute used in the Persepolis tablets was bazish, actually a loan word from Old Persian baji. Surprisingly, the word itself only comes up five times in the fortification archive, which ends in the mid-490s. Three of those times, it's actually in the context of bazikara, meaning tax collectors. We can identify a few more instances of tribute being moved in the fortification archive when the names of those tax collectors come up on other tablets. The Persepolis archives reveal the striking variety of products paid to the royal treasury as tribute. Silver, oil, wine, grain, horses, and livestock all come up very frequently, but more often than not, the exact trade goods are not specified and are instead identified just by some quantity. Presumably, this would have been clearer at the time when the actual tribute was also present in Persepolis to be looked at and catalogued. And presumably, this would have included just about anything that could be bought and sold. We know, for instance, that huge amounts of purple-dyed cloth were shipped to the Persepolis treasury. A surprising amount of royal taxes were paid in perishable goods, which is exemplified in one tablet lamenting the loss of 828 units of something in transit. And it doesn't seem like anybody was penalized for this, more that transporting perishable goods and losing them was just part of doing business, whether that business was being a merchant or being a tax collector. One particularly noteworthy element of tribute is human beings. Despite modern claims to the contrary, the Achaemenids did have slaves and deal in slavery. It was a different system than that of Greece and Rome or the transatlantic modern slave societies, and it will get its own episode in the future. For now, it's important to note that entries like 
40 men, 11 boys, and 5 horses paid as tribute from Erdabama are not at all out of place. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. All of this was organized and overseen by a legal system of courts that spread across the empire based on a Babylonian model, a model which was fundamentally built on a system developed by Bronze Age kings like Hammurabi almost 1300 years earlier. This empire-wide Babylonian legal system does seem to predate Darius, but we certainly have evidence that Darius took a direct interest in codifying and overseeing the spread of these courts. Babylonian records show that a large number of new clerks were hired during the reign of Darius, and a Seleucid-era legal document from 218 BC attributes the codification of Babylonian law to Darius the Great. The idea of Darius having Babylonian legal scholars draw up a new, concise legal code for the whole empire is entirely in keeping with other developments. For instance, in Egypt, Darius is said to have ordered that all the laws of the country be assembled into one collection for the sake of jurisprudence. It was also in Darius's reign that the second major wave of Jewish exiles returned to Judea and began the final editing process of the Torah. Given that Darius is also the king who first funded the building of the second temple in Jerusalem, 
This might also be an example of local law being properly codified during his reign. Then, of course, to record any of these laws and taxes, there had to be effective systems of writing and record-keeping. Even though the languages of those law codes I just mentioned had already been in use for centuries, none of them ever saw widespread adoption in the Persian Empire. Still, there was a lot of development in that sphere during the reign of Darius. Some of that was intentional and innovative, while other things simply accelerated ongoing processes, and still more may be accidental or the products of his successors. On one hand, you have the very deliberate invention of Old Persian script. Modern scholars generally agree that the cuneiform alphabet used to write Old Persian was invented spontaneously rather than evolving over time. It adopted elements of the Semitic language alphabets, like Aramaic and Hebrew, while maintaining the aesthetic prestige of Akkadian and Elamite cuneiform. Then, of course, there's Darius boasting about a new form of Iranian writing in the Behistun inscription, which kind of seals the deal on that debate for me. It's also attributed to Darius in the apocryphal 21st letter of Themistocles, which dates from the Roman period, basically confirming that the same belief was held by ancient historians as well as modern ones. For a very long time, it was assumed that Old Persian cuneiform was developed as a purely ceremonial alphabet, used only for royal inscriptions and monuments. The spoken form of the language appears to have been the actual first language of the royalty and nobility, but was never used in administrative or literary writing. 99% of our examples fit that description. But then someone sat down to catalog a tablet from the fortification archive called PFS-0041. This one tablet dramatically shakes up our understanding of Old Persian writing. It was an administrative tablet, discussing the pretty mundane transaction of 6,000 liters of dry goods from an administrator to five villages over the course of two years. It's part of the fortification archive, so we can firmly say that it's from the reign of Darius, and it's pretty unremarkable. Except, it's the only tablet in Old Persian, and the only example of Old Persian outside of royal inscriptions, or a few loanwords in other languages. Some scribe at Persepolis, in the late 6th century or early 5th century, knew Old Persian, and was confident enough that some other administrator would also know Old Persian and be able to file this tablet correctly, which seems to suggest that Old Persian cuneiform literacy may have been more widespread than previously thought. It also leaves us wondering if we've misinterpreted the role of Persian cuneiform altogether. Unfortunately, lacking any other evidence, PFS-0041 remains an oddity. Never particularly invested in imposing their culture on their subjects, the Achaemenids never forced Old Persian to become an administrative language or even a widespread spoken one. In general, local administration was still handled in the local language 
the historic language of the local area at the time of Darius the Great. In Babylonia, archives were maintained in Akkadian. In Egypt, hieroglyphs continued. In Anatolia, Greek and various forms of Phrygian language were common. And in the small province of Yehud, we have plenty of evidence that Hebrew remained in use. The real anomaly to me is Ekbatana in Media. There wasn't the same historical tie to Elamite which you would find in Parsa, and there's not much evidence to suggest that the Medes adopted Akkadian after defeating Assyria. In all probability, Median records were kept in Aramaic, by far the most important language in the empire and the most widespread. Media probably joined the ranks of Syria and the Levant in adopting Aramaic as the usual written language, at least for record-keeping, even if everyone still spoke their native Median or Persian language. This was doubly true in the eastern provinces, where there is no documented literacy prior to the arrival of the Persian Empire. In the East, Aramaic undoubtedly became the de facto language of administrative and legal documents. Aramaic had already been developing as the common language of Near Eastern empires and trade for centuries. It spread across the region during the Aramaean migrations of the Bronze Age and Early Iron Age, and it really started to take hold as a lingua franca for diplomacy and trade during the Neo-Assyrian period. By the Achaemenid period, Aramaic was indisputably the lingua franca for most of the empire, and it quickly became the language of record for the whole Persian domain. Even though local dialects remained dominant forces in record-keeping, especially during those early generations from Cyrus to Darius, Aramaic clearly played a role in official documents, especially correspondence between Persian administrators and local officials. Much like English being the primary language of the United Nations and the European Union, or French being the common language in the early modern period, or even Latin as the common language of medieval Europe, Aramaic fulfilled a similar role in the ancient Near East. In the first few generations of the Persian period, a standard interprovincial form of Aramaic became the standard for official purposes and long-distance communication. Due to its relationship with the Persian Empire, we call this dialect Imperial Aramaic, and it appears to have become increasingly common for official purposes under Darius, even, or maybe especially, in Parsa. Even though Elamite is the absolute majority language in the Persepolis archive, there is a significant minority of tablets composed in Aramaic, and the thing is, Aramaic isn't really a language of clay tablets anyway. Cuneiforms, sharp, deliberate, angular wedges, were developed for a flat stylus pressed into clay, and there are actually kind of a pain to write out in ink on paper. Aramaic, on the other hand, can be etched into clay, but was developed with papyrus in mind. Papyrus is a reed which grows in Egypt along the Nile River and Red Sea. When woven and pressed together, the fibers of this reed make an excellent writing surface, similar to paper but more brittle. More often than not, Aramaic was written on papyrus, or leather, 
Leather can sometimes mean regular tanned hides, but may also imply an early version of parchment. Clay records from Dasculeum even reference leather records kept at Persepolis, undoubtedly composed in Aramaic. Elamite tablets also reference copies translated into Aramaic and presumably written out on leather or papyrus. Aramaic was convenient for writing on that softer medium, and leather or papyrus was much more convenient than clay. It was cheaper, easier to store, easier to transport, and thus made Aramaic more appealing to administrators across the empire than Elamite, Akkadian, or Old Persian. We don't know the degree to which Darius actively pressed for Aramaic to be adopted in his kingdom, but references to Aramaic copies in the fortification archive might suggest that he was starting to transition away from clay tablets and into leather scrolls for royal archive purposes. We might find more evidence for this by comparing the fortification archive which begins when Persepolis was sufficiently complete in 502 and ends in 493, to the Treasury Archive, which begins in 493 and lasts all the way until 458 in the reign of Artaxerxes I. This is despite the Treasury Archive being much smaller. It seems that for whatever reason, Records from after 493 didn't survive nearly as well as records from the early period of the Persepolis Administrative Center. We might guess that that's because they were transitioned fully into Aramaic scrolls and that just wouldn't last as long. As of now, in September 2020, no Elamite texts have been found in the Persian capitals after the seventh year under Artaxerxes I. There is potential in the southern fortification at Persepolis, called Ku'e-Ramat, where archaeologists have found uninscribed fragments, but that is yet to be excavated. From what we can see now, it almost seems like record-keeping just stopped. Of course, that's ridiculous but our records would dry up if there was a large-scale transition to Aramaic records. When you fire a clay tablet, it hardens and can survive for millennia. There is no equivalent process for leather or papyrus other than copying their contents onto clay or stone. Only some of the driest conditions on Earth, combined with a lot of luck, can successfully preserve those biodegradable, flammable materials for thousands of years. That's why most of our best papyrus comes from Egypt and the Levant. Iran, Anatolia, and Central Asia are not conducive to surviving records on perishable writing surfaces. And of course, there's the issue of Alexander of Macedon burning everything he could burn in Persepolis. Even if the leather copies could have survived, they certainly didn't once they became kindling. Inadvertently, the decision, whether conscious or not, to switch to the much more utilitarian Aramaic as an administrative language ultimately led to a massive loss of sources for the Achaemenid Empire, a transition plausibly initiated by Darius, and one that ultimately means 
that Darius's reign is the best documented period in Achaemenid history. Even in the archives that survived in Damascus, Ecbatana, or Bactria, once the Greeks and Macedonians took over, scribes stopped copying the centuries-old receipts, and they were thrown out or rotted away. It's a massive loss of information, and not at all unique. It's the same problem that plagues ancient writing the world over. If it's not inscribed on clay and stone, it has to be copied, and copies require constant interest. Once scribes stop being interested in a text, be it narrative, history, or tax documents, we lose access to that information. But from what does survive, we can glean quite a lot. In this case, mountains of information about the administrative processes of the Achaemenid Empire during the middle years of Darius. And that only serves to reinforce Herodotus' idea that Darius was a shopkeeper, a clerk or an accountant who was constantly trying to streamline the business practices of his empire. And from what we can tell, he was very successful in those endeavors. And with that, I'm going to conclude the last real episode on things that Darius the Great did during his time as Great King. We'll have one more episode before the narrative resumes, so you can look forward in two weeks to a trip back in time to discuss the religious foundations of the Persian Empire and the Iranian world more generally. The next episode will dive into the theology of Zoroaster and the Gathas. Until then, if you're looking for more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com or find us on social media. Once again, it's History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at History of Persia on Twitter. I also want to remind and encourage everyone to start asking me questions for the episode 50 Q&A and to support the show. You can do that financially on Patreon or Lyceum FM, and you can do it without spending a dime by leaving a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, and sharing this on social media. Tell people you know about how great the History of Persia podcast is. That is absolutely the best way to help this show grow, reach more people, Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 